Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13, navigate on your device. We're reading out of the New King James Version, but you can choose the one that's best for you. Chapter 13, verse 1, we're going to look into chapter 14, verse 23, but we will get through it, don't worry. The topic we find there, Lucifer is cast from heaven, having delusions that he can be like God. The title of the message, Lucifer in the Sky with Delusions. (laughs) Father, we love you so much, and and, uh, we want to approach this with humble hearts, with real humility, Lord. Isaiah speaking so many centuries ago, Lord, to a a totally different people, uh, and yet so much insight for us today, because we are still your people. Israel is not the church, the church is not Israel, but we are all your people, Lord, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, drawn to you, born again with eternal life. We thank you so much for that. And so may these words come alive in our hearing, because your Holy Spirit is our true teacher. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. I am addicted to watching fail videos. Anybody else admit that? I'm Gene, and I watch fail videos, right? Kind of a fail video group? No? Nobody goes to AA here? Okay. That's good. Uh, Right now, my favorites are about tree trimming and tree removal. All I can say is, Hire a professional if you want to live. (laughs) When reading the history of the nation of Israel in the Bible, it's easy to think you are watching an epic fail compilation. There are so many fails to choose from. Can you say golden calf? That's the kind of thing. And then all the way up to Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and what he would say to Israel before he was stoned, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. And so uh, lots of failure in the nation of Israel. The first verse of chapter 14 is thus a surprise, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. God will still choose Israel. That doesn't mean he's going to choose them all over again. It means that he will not abandon or revoke his choice of them. Everything he told them he was going to do with them and for them and through them is going to happen. They will be his special nation. He has promised them they'll be saved, live in their promised land. They'll be the key nation during the thousand-year kingdom on earth. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, explains it when he says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. So which one do you want this morning? Which one? First service was very determined about irrevocable. I'll just say not revoked. How's that? I'd go with my daughter-in-law on this, but anyway, I just, you know. I don't know where I am and why. Why do I do these things? So the, God's call to Abraham to be the father of a new nation, that cannot be revoked. No one can take the place of Israel. The grace that the Lord promised Israel through Abraham can never, ever be revoked. Now, some of their covenants were conditional, but most of what God did with them was unconditional. And when we talk about the land and a king and a kingdom and those kinds of things... God will still choose Israel. 
every unconditional promise God made us cannot be revoked as well. And that's our point of contact, to realize that we have a faithful, promise-keeping God. And when you encounter an unconditional promise, then it cannot change. There's a whole bunch of people who think, for example, that Israel has been replaced by the church because God finally couldn't stand it anymore, I guess, with Israel. And, and so now all of Israel's promises belong to you in a spiritual sense. Well, then God would be a promise breaker, right? He made unconditional promises specifically to Israel, not to non-Israel. And so it can't happen. And you have to have that kind of clarity with his promises to you. You may not be able to see in your lifetime how his promises to you are going to work out. He never said that. But whatever he's promised you is true. And and when you stop and think about it that way, what a comfort uh, and what a joy to know the Lord. And so uh, I'm going to organize my comments around two points. The Lord will still choose Israel is how you interpret the world. And the Lord will still choose Israel is how you interpret the unseen world. So let's get into it in verses 1 through 22 of chapter 13. You know who else has a lot of fails? Me. John Stott once said, seldom if I ever leave the pulpit without a sense of partial failure, a mood of penitence, a cry to God for forgiveness, and a resolve to look to him for grace to do better in the future. You know who else has a lot of fails? You. Henry Drummond put it this way, our efforts after Christian growth seem a succession of failures, and instead of rising into the beauty of holiness, our life is a daily heartbreak and humiliation. So let's read that key verse again, chapter 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Of course, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. Jacob had his name changed to Israel by God. And so when they say Jacob, it's a synonym for Israel. He was the father of the 12 boys who became the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes. The strangers that are mentioned here, that's Gentile nations who God says he will join with Israel. And so by that, we know that Isaiah is looking past his own time, past our time, to a time when Jews and Gentiles will be living in peace in the kingdom of God on earth. Now, I find it fascinating that, uh, you know, God's people needed comforting and the word of God is going to bring them comfort. Uh, and you know, they're facing the threat from the Assyrians, and the northern kingdom had just been destroyed. And so Isaiah comes with this word of comfort, and his word of comfort ignores the Assyrian threat, goes to Babylon, and starts to encourage them about the kingdom of God on earth. And you think, well, yeah, that sounds great. A lot of talk today among Christians about why do we need to study all this prophecy? We need to be doing something today. God's program, I mean, God's... Uh, plan here is that, hey, you want to be encouraged? Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're you're having a small view of the world. Let me give you the big picture. And that's what's going to really encourage you. And ultimately, that's true, right? I mean, you know, the thing that maybe discourages us the most as Christians is what? The death of a loved one. Okay. Uh, And yet, Paul, when he said, okay, I'm going to encourage you about the death of your believing loved one, Don't grieve as others that have no hope. Why? Because the Lord is coming. He too looked to the future. He too taught prophetically. And so there's nothing more encouraging or meant to be more encouraging than Bible prophecy. And so um, that's what's going on here. And it's, it's pretty exciting. 
Verse 1, the burden against, chapter 13 now, verse 1, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now, we don't immediately catch it, but Isaiah wrote this 150 years before Babylon was a world power. This would be like saying the burden that, uh, against Riverdale that Gene saw, you know, or something like that. Riverdale is going to rise up and be, you know, a power. Uh, so I, I got to sneak. It's part of my contract. I have to talk about Riverdale. <laughs> Throughout these next several chapters, Isaiah is going to be jumping back and forth in time. We'll see him speaking about his own time, about the near future and the far future. What he had to say was a burden. Best way to understand that is in the Fillmore, the hippie VW bus version of the Bible, which says, that's heavy, man. So it was a heavy word for him to bring. The next several chapters of Isaiah involved the nations of the earth, specifically Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab. Damascus, Cush, Edom, Tyre, and Sidon. One by one from chapter 13 through chapter 23, Isaiah gives a history lesson. Bottom line, God is over the nations of the world. History is anchored to Jerusalem and Israel. We are to interpret history and the nations by God's plan of redemption through Israel. Because that's what's going on. That's the, that's the world. That's the history of the world. You take world history uh, in school, they don't start in the Garden of Eden, do they? Uh, But but you should, because what happened there and what's happening in God's plan of redemption, that is world history. And then one day, God's going to be done with this particular world, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Lift up a banner on high. Raise your voice to them, verse 2. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The Medes, joined by the Persians, would conquer Babylon. God considered them his sanctified ones that were set apart by him to do his will. They were his mighty ones and that he allowed them to rise to power. And so God, whatever's happening in these nations, whatever demonic influences are behind them, God is overruling it, looking far ahead and saying, okay, I need to get ready for Babylon to be destroyed by Persia. And and that's what Isaiah is uh, relating here. Their conquest of Babylon was God's victory, but they would rejoice as if it were theirs. Nations would do well to acknowledge God rather than supposing their own wisdom makes them great. This was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon's problem. He went around the city walls and looked at the great empire that he had built, and God said, no, no. You didn't build it. You're my tool. And then he struck him with a particular kind of madness that lasted several years. And so we, our nation must acknowledge that God is the great one. Uh, You know, we we might, people might be smart and they might have done smart things, but only because God was leading and and he is behind what happens in nations. Uh, Verse four, the noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Now, reading this by itself, it seems far future. Isaiah was made aware of the rebuilding of the city of Babylon during the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. Two chapters, chapter 17 and 18 in the book of the Revelation, are dedicated to end times Babylon. 
Kingdoms of nations will be gathered together from a far country to destroy the land. That sounds like the Battle of Armageddon to me. Leading to the Battle of Armageddon is a time of global tribulation greater than anything the world has ever experienced. Isaiah is going to give us an 11-verse summary of the Great Tribulation. Verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, in the day of his fierce anger, it shall be as the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people, and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children, too, will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Great tribulation. We call it the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the title given by Jeremiah in chapter 30. Keeps our focus on its purpose, which is to save all Israel before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Sure, there will be Gentiles on the earth uh, who are subject to his judgment as well. They're called even the, the inhabitants of the earth. They're a special people group. Uh, but basically, the, God is going to remove the church to renew his dealings with Israel, and it'll be a time of intense tribulation where he is revealing himself to those that are around the world. And by the time of the end, when he returns, the Bible says that all Israel will be saved at his second coming. So in verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. The Jews would be held captive in Babylon for a period of 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah. God would then raise up the Medes to conquer Babylon, and that would set the stage for Israel to return to Jerusalem because uh, Cyrus, King Cyrus, who's mentioned hundreds of years before he was born, he will let them go. And so verse 19, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels, and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged." The conditions described here have never been entirely true of Babylon in its history. And so when we read the Revelation in chapter 18, and it says that there is a rebuilt Babylon that will be destroyed in one day, uh, we understand that this, this is a future city. Uh, some argue that Babylon is merely a symbol 
that can be attached to any city. So, for, you know, for example, you might go to the office tomorrow and somebody says, oh, I just got back from Babylon. Oh, yeah, where? Las Vegas. Uh, you know, or whatever they think is Babylon. And, uh, and so you know, it becomes figurative. The problem with that is we like to take things as they come in the Bible. Uh, and when you're reading about Babylon in the book of the Revelation, there's no indication that it's a symbol or a type. You know, Revelation, people say, oh, there's so many symbols and types that no one can understand it. Well, usually a few verses after they give you the symbol, they tell you what it means. It's it's its own concordance. It's its own reference. Nothing like that. Babylon appears to be and is a real city built on the ancient site of Babylon. And that makes sense because it is the second most mentioned city in the Bible next to Jerusalem. It's almost as if it's Babylon versus, you know, uh, Jerusalem. We used to watch, anybody watch roller derby when you were a kid? They had a, a league of different teams, but they were all the same people each time. They're, they're like enough people for two teams, and they just donned different uniforms. But, I mean, yeah, and so the Bible is like, hey, this is what happened at Babylon. Not too long after the flood, God tra- starting over with the human race, uh, they said, hey, we're not going any farther. We're going to camp right here. We're going to build a city, and we're going to build a tower to God. And God said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And he confused their languages, and that was the birth of the nations of the world. And, and, and God then in the next chapter, chapter 12, I think, of Genesis says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a new nation. And, and it's been that way ever since. And so that's what's happened. So Babylon, we believe, will be rebuilt on its ancient site in the end times. Has God cast away his people? No. God will still choose Israel. We read this in Romans, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. (laughs) Wait a minute, now I hit my thing here. Is a promise to Israel that what God started by calling Abraham, their gifts were to reveal to the other nations of the world the adoption, it says, the glory, covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers, and of course, Jesus Christ. And so this, you know, God said, this is what you are going to contribute to the human race. You ever see those specials? They say, this is what the Italians have contributed to, you know, the world. Uh, Or they they take a certain ethnic group so you can feel pride in your ethnicity. And so God says, here's what the Jews are going to contribute, the law and Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And and they do. But for all their failures, they, they do. God is faithful to his promises. Let's call failure what it is, sin. We should never willfully sin so that grace may abound. But when we sin, grace does abound. God has made many unconditional promises to you. Here's a doozy passage from 1 Peter filled with promises. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Unconditional promises just in, that few, in those five verses are uh, he saved you, you are kept in his power, he, you can serve him and be rewarded, and he is coming for you. That's true no matter what state you are in as a Christian. Should we sin that grace might abound? Never, never. But whatever state you find yourselves in, God has promised you certain things and he will still choose you, you might say. If you failed, if you're backslidden, repent. 
and just get moving again. Time is short. Get to serving the Lord. Now, the Lord still chooses Israel as how you are to interpret the unseen world. Behind the conflict between nations, there is a cosmic conflict playing out. It involves malevolent, powerful, supernatural beings who are in rebellion against God. One of their key strategies is to destroy Israel. Because if they can do that, then God will have failed epically. And in this section, we're going to meet their leader. And so verse 1, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. The Medes, as I said, would allow Jews to return to Jerusalem. You can read that history recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Verse 3, And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the ruler. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you and the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up them from their thrones, all kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. Ew. Now, these verses describe a very human king of Babylon in his defeat. Other kings of the earth address him. He's called the man. He possesses a physical body. He's on his way to hell to be deposed or to be with other deposed tyrants, and his body is maggot food and a worm bed. Okay, so this is a human being. But now there's an abrupt shift in verse 12. A supernatural being is introduced, and we learn he is responsible for puppeteering many of the world's tyrants, uh, especially those that come directly against Israel. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Lucifer is not a proper name. It is the Latin word for morning star or day star. It refers to the planet Venus, but metaphorically it was used to refer to earthly kings or emperors and even pagan deities. There are any number of monarchs in human history who called themselves the king of kings, right? Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who uh, was the precursor of the Antichrist in the book of Daniel, he called himself the king of the universe. And so people say, well, wait a minute, how could, Lucifer, how could this be a name for Lucifer? Because in the Revelation, Jesus says, no, I'm the bright and morning star. Well, first of all, like I said, it's not a name. And secondly, it would be like Lucifer saying, I'm the king of kings. Well, no, you're not. Jesus is the king of kings, just like no earthly king is the king of kings. And so it's not a big problem, really. He thought of himself that way, but he, didn't, he wasn't Jesus. Jesus is the bright and morning star. Charles Ryrie writes that this person is, quote, evidently a reference to Satan 
because of the inappropriateness of the expressions of verse 13 to 14 on the lips of any being but Satan. And so by default, and by looking at Ezekiel 28, we see this as a reference to Satan. In the New Testament, he is called the God of this age. He's called the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit now at work in the disobedient. We understand that he was a, uh, an angel, a beautiful angel, that sin was found in him. He was cast out, and now he operates still in the heavens. Uh, he hasn't been completely cast down to earth yet. He still has access to heaven, according to Job. He hangs out in the heavens where he can do his malicious stuff on the earth, and one day God will cast him down to earth permanently and then into the abyss and then into the lake of fire. Satan energized the king of Babylon, and he will do it again in the future rebuilt Babylon. He will energize the beast of the revelation, the Antichrist. It's one of his favorite spots on earth, apparently, Babylon. It was there that he launched that rebellion against God, inciting the post-flood population of the world to build the tower. It's not wrong to say that all of the world's false religions really have their origin in that event. One of his most successful strategies is weakening nations. I think most evangelical Christians like ourselves would agree that the United States has been weakened spiritually, especially over the last century and even over the last 50 years. We've done almost everything possible to exclude God from public. Public schools had prayer for nearly 200 years before the Supreme Court mandated that it was uh, unconstitutional. That was in June of 1962. So the question is, removing prayer from school, how has it helped? Are schools better off because we don't pray first thing in the morning? I don't think so. Jim Nelson Black wrote, As I have looked back across the ruins and landmarks of antiquity, I've been stunned by the parallels between those societies and our own. Three important trends demonstrate moral decay. They are the rise in immorality, the decay of religious belief, and the devaluing of human life. Is there moral decay in America? Well, once Christian churches and colleges are denying the faith once for all delivered, uh, there definitely is a rise in immorality uh, like never before. And we've murdered upwards of 63 million babies. And so we are definitely, uh, we've definitely pushed God as a nation. We are not acknowledging God and we are doing everything we can to inspire the wrath of God against our nation. And at the very best, at the very best, God has given us over to whatever we want to do and is just watching. Uh, what's the hope? Same as always, Jesus. People need to get saved. They can't always make the connection. You know, they think, well, th what does that have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus because he's the creator and the king. Now, in this next section, verses 13 and 14, preachers are obligated to say that Satan has an eye problem. Right, so you've heard me say that, so I can check that off on my uh, you know, review. Verse 13, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. I will ascend the heavens of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I, 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 right? It's an ego thing. It's, it's Satan looking at the Lord and thinking, hey, no, I, I could be like you. I'm just as good as you. I'm uh, equal with you. Now, what can be said about Satan's sin? Where did it originate? I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's not really our point, but people worry about this. What we know for sure 
is that it, it, God didn't make him that way. It, it can be traced back to God. Everything God did was good. Uh, he doesn't have anything to do with evil. He's not the creator of evil. Uh, and so, uh, you know, personally, I speculate, I've come to, to think that it has a lot to do with man's free will. God makes a, a being in his image, right? Adam and Eve. Uh, and in his image, they would have free will, and they exercise their free will badly. And in that choice, they threw us all into the world that we have today. Now, in the far future, after God's done with this world and we're in eternity, right, in our glorified bodies, we are going to have free will like God does because we're made in his image. But we'll have a free will that is unable to sin. There, there's no more tests. There, there's, instead of the one tree that you can't eat from, it is on both sides of the river coming out of God's throne, and you can eat the different fruit every month, a different fruit. And so there's not going to be anything. You say, wait a minute, how, how is it possible to have free will, genuine free will, and not sin? Ask God, because he has genuine free will, and he cannot sin. And so in the end, he will have a being, humans, that can have really great fellowship with him, perfect fellowship. We won't be God. We won't be gods. We will be human beings in glorified bodies who can exercise free will without sinning. In between, that, you know, does man have free will? Well, in the garden, Adam continued to have free will, did he not? You know, some people will tell you, eventually, I know we're going to, this is a big rabbit trail, but I love it. Anyway, somebody's going to tell you, hey, you're dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do anything. You know, God chose you. You don't choose God. And there's no free will. Uh, well, after Adam and Eve sinned, they still knew who God was. They talked with God. God talked with them. In fact, past Babylon, they, God was still on earth talking to men. And they had obviously free will because they said, we're stopping right here. We're going to build a tower right here. And God says, man, we got to do something about this. And so um, I, I don't think people understand. It's easy for God to create an automaton, something that will always obey him and that has no choice. It's hard. Not too hard for God, but it's hard to create a being that has genuine free will. And, and that's part of what's going on in the redemption of the Bible. And so that's my stab at it. Uh, bottom line, God is not the author of evil. Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? who did not open the house of his prisoners. King Theoden, holed up in Helm's Deep, looked upon the approaching orcs and lamented, what can be done against so much hate, against so many enemies, against so much chaos, so much stress, so much evil, so much false worship? We are told to do this, go with the gospel and make disciples of all men. Whatever the question, the answer is Jesus. And so when we look out at the world with all the things that are happening in our world, the answer remains, go make disciples of all men. Because until we have more Christians than non-Christians, we're going to have trouble. We're going to have problems. Now, Christians fight. They have a hard time with each other. And, you know, we're not all that uh, peaceful sometimes. But um, at least we all believe in Jesus Christ, right, if you're a Christian. And there can be a hope for peace. Uh, and so we just need to get on the same side, and it's, it's Jesus' side. And now in verses 18 on to 23, Isaiah gives us a final look at the human king of Babylon and his defeat. 
He says, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their father, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. We're rightfully concerned about the war in Ukraine, about the alliance that is growing between Russia and China, about China and Brazil switching from the U.S. dollar to the Chinese yuan, about the superpower China has become. Let's not forget to factor in that there is a supernatural power behind all nations. Satan has a strategy to align nations against God and especially against Israel. He will kill and destroy anywhere he can. Uh, Right now, I, look, I, I don't know much about anything. I know you think I'm being falsely humble, but I, I'm a lot stupider than you realize. But uh, I know that things are not going well in the world, right? And, and uh, no one can really explain to anyone else what's actually happening. Why are we in the Ukraine? What's between Ukraine? And, uh, do you understand the ancient problems between Russia and the Ukraine? Do you know what we're doing? Uh, and our leaders don't seem to know what we're doing. And so it's, it's weird. You know who knows what he's doing? God. And you need to remember that God is over the nations. And he will make moves and counter moves to have his will done. And so a lot of, I think, what's happening with the nations is just that Satan wants to kill everybody. He was a murderer from the beginning. He loves, he's the greatest serial killer of all time. And he wants to just murder people. And so anywhere where he can have a war, he has one. And when you're dealing with people who are not believers, they're not invoking God's help in any way, any shape, and they're depending on their own wisdom. And I got to tell you, I'm worried about our leaders and their wisdom, right? I'd be happier if they came to know Jesus Christ and were praying about what we're doing. Thanos chided the Avengers Surprised they never use their most powerful weapon. We ought to use ours first and foremost. Prayer, corporate worship and prayer, testimony, and of course, the word of God. Those things are powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. Here's some other weapons. They, they read like characteristics, but Paul says they're really weapons to use as we're out in the world sharing the gospel. We don't like any of them, by the way. So let's just take a look at them. This is from 2 Corinthians 6. Patience. I could stop there, right? (laughs) Patience, tribulation, not the great tribulation, but just trials. Needs, distresses, stripes, which means getting beaten for your beliefs. Imprisonment, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, fastings, purity, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, sincere love, the word of truth, the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. And he goes on with some other things. And so basically what Paul is saying, hey, our greatest weapon we're finding in this book is to be Christians, is to just step forward and say, say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is in me. I want to tell you about Jesus. 
and I want to get control of some of my own life that has spun out of control and uh, just make this thing happen. And, and the, you know, you say, well, how's that going to keep a nuclear war from the Ukraine? That's not my problem. God didn't say, Gene, what I want you to do is figure out the problems in Crimea. Uh, he goes, I can take care of that because I know all these guys that are behind the nations and nothing's going to happen that I don't approve of. In the meantime, get somebody saved. Get them to church. Have them change their life. And just keep this thing going until I come for you, which is any minute now. Amen?